Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Hello and welcome to These Times. I'm Tom McTague. And I'm Helen Thompson. This week we're returning to the war in Ukraine and have the great Shashank Joshi from The Economist with us to help guide us through the crisis. In the last few weeks alone, it feels as if the perception of this crisis has really shifted. Just a couple of weeks ago, we had Shashank's The Economist run a front page with the headline, Is Putin Winning? I think we've had five really big developments which have sort of played into this changing narrative. We've had a failed offensive, a Ukrainian offensive over the summer, and Russian gains in the last few weeks. We've had the US Senate blocking $60 billion of aid that should have been going to Ukraine. In Europe, we've had Orban, Viktor Orban, blocking 50 billion euros worth of aid. We've had Polish truckers blockading four points across the border with Ukraine, making it much harder to get military aid into the country. And we've had Putin feeling confident enough to start visiting allies in the Middle East. So the question we're going to be discussing this week with Shashank is, why has supporting Ukraine become so politically difficult in many Western countries? And what are the consequences for Ukraine, for the EU, for NATO and for the geopolitical conflicts around the Middle East? With much of the world's attention on the Middle East, the head of NATO tried today to refocus minds and money on Ukraine. Russia has launched a new ground offensive in eastern Ukraine. Commitments of aid to Ukraine are at their lowest since the war began. Mr. Zelensky said, if we don't get the aid, we will lose the war. Without additional funding, uh, these weapons will be among the last that we'll be able to send. Russia fired cruise missiles at Ukraine on Friday for the first time in more than two months. Also on hand in Moscow was Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi, one of the few world leaders who will still shake Putin's hand his drones have aided Russia's bombardment of Ukraine cities all summer. So, Shashank, thanks so much for coming on. It's great to see you again so quickly after our last recording. Thank you so much for having me back on, Tom. It's great to see you and Helen. Right. Let's start, I think, at the front line. Could you give us an overview of what's happening there? Because it's very difficult as a layman to fully understand what's happening, what's going on with the map, who's taking territory and who's not taking territory. It's actually very easy to give you an overview because, quite frankly, not much is happening. In the south, on the main thrust of Ukraine's counteroffensive, it, that offensive has essentially finished. It has concluded. Of course, there is some pressing on foot, but the weather has changed. The ground is boggy. Uh, it isn't any more subject to exploitation by tanks if they were to make a breakthrough. The offensive is broadly finished. The majority of the offensive action is now on the Russian side in the eastern part of the front in a place called Avdivka. And although Russia has put the majority of its equipment and manpower on that axis and they are pushing, it is a little bit reminiscent of Bakhmut, which is to say enormous resources for very, very little gain. The front lines are hardly moving. Ukraine's in a pretty tough position. They may have to withdraw from Avdivka before the year is out. It isn't an enormously strategic site in itself, but of course it does um, have symbolic resonance and it would show Russia progressing at a time when Ukraine is static. I think apart from that, the two things to mention are, of course, that Russian 
air and missile strikes on Ukrainian cities are picking up again. We saw, I think, just just before we're talking here, some uh, drone and ballistic missile strikes on Kiev, um, and they are clearly beginning their winter campaign, although not yet, I think, at full intensity. I think it's going to be quite bad once it begins. And the other thing to mention is rather small, but we are seeing Ukraine conduct some attacks over the Dnipro River in Kherson province. They've got a bridgehead on the uh, left bank of that river, the eastern side of that bank. Although from, from all we can see, it's pretty small. It doesn't seem likely to me to bust out into anything. So overall, Tom, I think these front lines are looking pretty static for me for a while to come. Shashan, can I ask you why... In the most simplest terms, did the Ukrainian summer offensive fail? I think there's lots of factors, Helen, but the Ukraine's defenders would say the West didn't give them enough kit and it didn't give it to them soon enough. I think there is something to that. I think if Ukraine had been given the precise same weapons and, and training and equipment and ammunition in, let's say, September, October of 2022, before then Russian commander Sergei Sorovikin had built out his formidable defensive lines, they would have had a much better chance of success. However, I'm, I'm always really keen to point out that that isn't the whole story. And that if you had given the Ukrainians in June of this year, twice as many tanks and twice as many artillery pieces, I am still sceptical that they would have been able to burst through. And that's because Russia defended pretty well, but it's also because ultimately the Ukrainians did not have enough training to conduct a kind of what we call combined arms breach, that is tanks, infantry, artillery working together of a well-defended front in an effective way. These were people who had about five weeks of training in Germany. They didn't really have enough time to practice suppressing Russian drones, Russian artillery fire. And I think that um, even with considerably more kit, that absence of training, the absence of proficiency skills, also the absence of staff officers, senior officers with experience of planning high-level operations, I think all of those things uh, made themselves felt, which is why I think that if we're looking ahead to next year, maybe we'll get onto that. Um, it isn't just about hardware; it's also about training, which I think has been grossly neglected. Can I ask a quick question on that, Shashank? Which is, I, I wonder whether the stalemate on the front line is that stable in a way, or is one side's position a bit more hollow than the other? Either that it's costing them more to keep the stalemate there, either in, in men, because I hear that the Russians are losing extraordinary numbers of men on the front line, but is that the same for the Ukrainians? And is there a, a sort of kit advantage on one side or the other? Do the Russians have lots more in the pipeline because they're ramping up their industrial um, capabilities? Well, first of all, I always distinguish between a stalemate and a frozen conflict. A frozen conflict, of course, a conflict which, you know, you, you can see the lines being stable for, for five, ten years and it's sort of st stuck in place. This is a stalemate, but it's not frozen in space. And the Russians have the initiative. And on present trends, if nothing else happened, if no one intervened, if nothing changed, Ukraine's position would slowly erode. I think that's clear to me, at least. The advantage, I think, is particularly in ammunition. Last this year's summer offensive was under was really underwritten, as I, as I think we said last time, Tom, by huge numbers of South Korean shells, about 750,000 South Korean shells. That is a one-off infusion. It's not going to happen again in the same way. The Russians have just received probably half a million shells from the North Koreans. That's a huge number of shells. Um, and they also, as you suggest, have been moving on to a war economy long before Europe has. In fact, Europe hasn't moved on to a war economy at all, really. Um, and so to give you a quick flavor of this, in 2025, the Americans will produce around, I think, 100,000 shells per month, somewhere, you know, just over a million shells in, in the year, 1.2 million shells in the year, which is enormous, given that they were producing 14,000 shells a month before the war began. That sounds great. But the Russians next year in 2024, that is well before the Americans ramp up to full pelt, will be making around one to two million shells a year, complemented by that North Korean supply. So the balance of ammunition, which is an absolutely critical determinant of outcomes at the tactical level, uh, is very lopsided against Ukraine next year. And so that's just one metric. I could give you many others on manpower, on equipment. But really, Ukraine, in the absence of Western support, maintaining itself, which, which obviously is quite fraught at the moment, uh, I think is going to be in an eroding position. Let's switch then, Shashank, to the domestic politics in the United States and this vote um, in the Senate, 
I think it was last week in relation to when we're talking, when every single Republican senator voted against extending the supplementary funding required to support Ukraine. And these are people, included people like Mitt Romney, um, Lindsey Graham, who've been very supportive of Ukraine through the course of the war. We can come on to the question of how that ties into the American border with Mexico, which is obviously the way in which tactically, at least, the Republicans are playing this issue. But how much do you think that what's going on in Washington reflects pessimism about Ukraine's military position? I think that's that's certainly part of it. Um, the, the, we had a majority of Congress, a big majority in the Senate, a pretty good majority in the House of Representatives who are pro-Ukraine. And notionally, that's still the case. But if you look at some of Ukraine's most staunch supporters, I think they are concerned about pouring good money after bad, the sense that Ukraine cannot break this stalemate, so why put more in? I think that the intellectual mistake there is assuming that the only objective is to break the stalemate um, via some kind of offensive. The goal could also be to stabilise the lines, to prevent a Russian defeat, and to keep Ukraine in the war on the assumption that Russia will not negotiate in good faith or will negotiate with the intention of rearming itself. But putting that aside for a moment, um, I think that's a factor. I think the other factor simply is that the Republican leadership um, in both the House and the Senate is increasingly in hock to the fringe elements of the Republican Party, even more so than was the case two months ago when Kevin McCarthy was deposed as leader of the House. Uh, and I think we see this in the position of someone like Mike Johnson, the new leader of the House, who is notionally pro-Ukraine in some respects, but actually really he remains prisoner to his most extreme factions. I think what we're seeing in, in the US is extremely depressing. Um, I think it, it's looking... I, I was pretty optimistic we'd see a package pass before the end of the year. I was in Washington two months ago. It's what I heard from everyone. I, I went back to the US last week. I was in Los Angeles for the Reagan Defense Forum, which, as you can imagine by the name, is a very Republican gathering at the Reagan Library in Simi Valley. And it's mostly pro-Ukraine Republicans. It's kind of a weird mix of old George W. Bush hangers-on and kind of mainstream center-right Republicans, and they exclude the sort of MAGA fringe. But nonetheless, I think they all acknowledged that the balance of power in the party lies with the extremes, and we may not see a supplemental pass before the end of this year, which which I have to say is just going to be disastrous. And the effects of that will be felt on the battlefield by January or so, I, I would say, because we'll feel the loss of ammunition, the loss of spares, the loss of supplies. Um, it will be felt. I was going to ask you, Shashank, could you spell out why it's so disastrous, you know, and how quickly... Uh, because I think that's quite hard to understand when you're talking about such enormous numbers. Aren't we? We're talking about $60 billion of US military aid that is being held up here, as I understand it. So what happens if that aid doesn't get through, doesn't get through quickly? Well, if you, if you want to get a sense of this, there's a there's a, a, a website called the Kiel Tracker. The Kiel Institute in Germany does a tracker of aid to Ukraine, and it looks at European aid and American aid. And notionally, the Europeans provide about as much as the Americans in terms of both military and military aid. Humanitarian aid, they provide more. The problem is the European commitments are multi-year commitments, which is great because it signals long-term support, but it's spread out. And the other problem is when you dig into the details, you realize there are some things that the Americans supply that are far more important. So that's not entirely true in every case. The French and the British supply long-range missiles that are more important than the American ones in the form of Storm Shadow and Scalp cruise missiles that have been striking Crimea. But if you look at the sort of bread and butter of what the Ukrainian army needs, and I really come back to stressing the importance of the humble artillery shell, you know, over and above anything fancy, no, not drones or AI or kind of wonder weapons. It comes down to these big, you know, steel packaged, little steel packages of explosives forged and filled with energetics and launched out of tubes at very high speeds over 30, 30 kilometers or so. These are fundamental to the war because they are absolutely critical to pounding the other side, suppressing their fire, giving you space to move, buying you time to move. It's all very sort of, you know, very 20th century in that sense. The Americans still are critical for that kind of thing. So not just that, but also, for example, for ammunition on air defenses. Um, they provide ammunition for Patriot missile defense systems. They provide ammunition for the NASM's cruise missile defense systems. They provide ammunition also, of course, for many of Russia's um, Ukraine Soviet era systems, which have been some of which have been refitted to take American missiles. 
without a steady supply of these things, Ukraine is not going to have enough missiles to take out incoming Russian drones. It's not going to have enough artillery shells to keep up the balance of fire on the front lines. And if Ukraine is outgunned, what that means is in places like Avdivka, which I mentioned at the outset, Russia's army will be able to advance at a slightly higher rate and with more success. Slowly, with heavy casualties, but they will advance nonetheless. And they're not going to march all the way to Kiev that way, but they can exhaust the underlying physical and moral strength of the Ukrainians in that way. Let's let's turn to Europe. And obviously that there's a number of things going on here, as uh, Tom explained at the beginning. We've got a European Council coming up this Thursday, in which... The Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has already made clear that he doesn't even want the question of more funding for Ukraine discussed. Neither does he want the question of Ukraine's negotiations to join the European Union discussed. He's been in Paris at Macron's invitation, Macron trying to persuade him to change his mind. That doesn't look like it's been successful. Then we've got this blockade by Polish truckers at the border that comes on top of a set of conflicts going back at least to September around Ukrainian grain exports that led Ukraine to take not just the Polish government, but the Hungarian and the Slovak government to the, the, the World Trade Organization. And that led to the Polish government, which we should say is in its last, literally in its last days, cutting off military aid to the Ukrainian government. So something is fundamentally, for the moment anyway, changed on that Polish-Ukraine border. Now, we know that Donald Tusk should become Prime Minister of Poland this week. Does this mean that there's going to be, do you think, a partial end to the European Union issue with Ukraine? Or is the Hungarian part of this what we should really, really worry about? Helen, I think you, you probably know more, it's much more than I do about the European dimensions here. But certainly, I think the focus has really dramatically changed to Orban. And of course, it's classic Macron, isn't it, that he feels he can summit his way out of this problem with a dinner. It, it kind of reminds me of his, his approach to the Putin problem in January, February 2022. Um, and, and, you know, the, the good, the optimistic way of looking at this is that it is straightforward blackmail. That is, Orban wants 30 billion euros in funds that have been suspended by the European Union over his malfeasance in, around things like um, uh, suspending the role of the independent, eroding the role of the independent judiciary in Hungary. He wants that money to flow. It's within Brussels' power. And in the past, he has folded, um, you know, over, for example, Russia sanctions. He's held the EU hostage to Russia sanctions, but he's eventually folded and given way when the money has come his way. The more pessimistic way of looking at it is, I think, that <clears throat> this is more ideological. This is more ideological. And it's more complex as well. For one thing, I think Viktor Orban feels that the EU uh, hasn't listened to him on the direction of the Ukraine conflict. And this is part of the problem. And we saw this again with his veto over Swedish membership of NATO on a separate basis. But also, this is to do with the broader problems around European funding for Ukraine. And some of this we saw in Germany. In November, Germany's constitutional court said that um, various measures the German government had used to get around their debt break were unconstitutional. That caused them to refashion some of their domestic budget. And that in turn put pressure on the EU budget. And the funding for Ukraine had been part of that. So that also feeds into this entire Hungary problem. I think a month ago, we were being told by European officials the accession process was going fantastically well. The Ukrainians were blitzing through some of these reform process discussions that in other countries like Albania had been taking years to get through. I think the mood really has soured on this. And the big problem is that slow battlefield progress was supposed to be offset by more rapid political progress. So we were having people saying, look, you journalists are fixating on these front lines, tactical movements of five kilometers here, six kilometers there, whereas actually the real story is Ukraine's transition to become a, a true European state and a NATO member. And in fact, as I think I always thought, these things are connected. And the trickier the battlefield looks, the stickier the politics of the rest of it has become. Yeah, I was going to say on on this, I think that there's a set of issues, aren't there, around Hungary's position in the EU that go beyond this particular conflict over Ukraine. Nonetheless, Hungary is a frontline state where Ukraine is concerned. It has a border with Ukraine. 
It has a Hungarian minority in Ukraine. And if you look at the Polish truckers dispute, various Hungarian truckers have been um, joining joining into this um, too. And I think that Orban might well think that he's been vindicated in his pessimism in saying that Ukraine can't make as much military progress um, or anything like as much military progress as Ukraine's strongest defenders within the in the European Union arguing. At some point, even if Orban is using this tactically to get more money or to get, as he sees it, money that he, he should have anyway back, it can't really avoid, can it, the question of like whether Hungary actually wants Ukraine in the European Union and NATO. And that is a strategic question that both Hungary and the European Union and NATO will have to face at some point. That's right. And I think just on the European side for a second, you to go back to the Polish dispute. This is just the, the beginning. If these truckers are protesting are being undercut by Ukrainian truckers, and of course, uh, the broader issue of grain shipments was a big Polish-Ukrainian dispute earlier. I mean, this is child's play compared to the question of um, solidarity funds and reconstruction funds that will have to flow from Eastern Europe to Ukraine if Ukraine joins, right? I mean, this, this is stating the obvious, but as countries that have for many years been recipients of EU money, quite understandably, will become senders of that money, will become net losers to Ukraine in the case of accession. And the ability to swallow that trade-off, that swallow that historic shift, I think really depends on some kind of positive mood around Ukraine, which is difficult to see. But the one thing I will say is that I don't want to give everyone the impression that everything is stuck in the mud and can't move at all. Russia has weaknesses. Russia has problems as well. Maybe we'll get on to some of those. And this is not a linear conflict, right? European and US defense industry is ramping up. And I think some of the benefits of that will be felt in 2025. And so next year is a really, really tough year. But that doesn't mean it's all a downward slope. I think things will also look up in some regards if we can get through the trickiest patch. So quickly, Shasha, before we move on, could you just also spell out to us how important this European aid package is for Ukraine? You, you spelled it out very well with the US money. What is this money doing for Ukraine? It's keeping the Ukrainian government solvent. There was about 50 billion euros of EU cash that was promised in June. That was supposed to keep the Ukrainian government solvent until... I think around 2027, if I remember correctly. Um, and there is more money in the pipeline that's been promised since. But without this money, you know, there is a risk of a sovereign default by Ukraine. Now, European officials say, look, that's not going to happen. That is such an explosive situation that we would sort this out in that kind of very EU way that says, Something will turn up. Something will happen. There'll be, you know, a 5 a.m. Um, uh, discussion after they've finished eating their foie gras and someone will put their arm around Orban and say, look, come on, this has gone far enough. But that's the stakes. I, I should just say quickly on that, in terms of the risk of a Ukrainian sovereign debt, that takes default. That takes us right back to the problems of 2013-14, because if we go back to the situation prior to the, prior to the annexation uh, of Crimea, uh, and why Yanukovych turned to Moscow was because neither the EU nor the Obama administration was willing to provide the kind of funding that could have saved Ukraine from financial crisis that autumn. So this issue really has got a, a consequential history. Just to finish this first half, Shashan, let's let's turn to Russia. Obviously, at various points during the course of this year alone, Russia's position has looked, and indeed to some extent Putin's position, has looked quite vulnerable. Think back to the events of the summer. And clearly, Russia, like Ukraine, has a set of issues around mobilizing soldiers. The domestic politics of that is not always straightforward. But if we look at where we are now, Putin has made his first trip to the Middle East since the invasion in the last week. He went to Riyadh um, to meet Mohammed bin Salman. He went to the United Arab Emirates. His OPEC Plus is holding together. Certainly, the tensions in it are not between Russia and Saudi Arabia. They're between some of the African producers and, and Saudi Arabia and Russia together. Is Russia has been selling oil to India over the $60 a barrel price, which is supposed to be the, the one that is effectively sanctioned. That's clearly not working. Russia's foreign exchange position has and general fiscal position has improved as the ability to sell oil above $60 a barrel has increased. Where do you see Russia having got to in this 
general strategic situation that it's in, in terms of having clear difficulties with the war militarily, but at the same time, Putin manoeuvring Russia around a bigger geopolitical picture. I mean, we can pick some of this up in the second half, but if you just wanted to say like the top headline of where we are with Russia at the moment, what would it be? The top headline, Helen, I think is that Russia has the tactical initiative and it has avoided the worst possible outcomes from the Ukrainian offensive this year. But it still has failed to meet its own minimal objectives for this war, which was the the so-called liberation or conquest of uh, Donbass. So in other words, it, what it practically means is getting the rest of Donetsk province, of which they still don't have a lot of it. And they have a Ukraine that is, despite every difficulty we've mentioned, moving closer to the West in, in so many ways, that will be acquiring advanced Western weaponry, transitioning to NATO standard weapons. And looking ahead, although Russia is building up its strength, it still has no strategic offensive capacity. That is, it still has lots of men, it has lots of weapons, but it doesn't really have trained, equipped, efficient manpower capable of pushing through Ukrainian lines. And that lack of serious offensive capacity, I think, is still one of the principal limitations on Russia, even into the the medium term, all the way through the middle of next year. That's great. We'll come back after the break and we'll start talking about the way in which the the general domestic political situation in Western countries is having an impact on this conflict. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. So, Shashank, at the end of that first half there, you were explaining the overall picture here. And I can't help but feel quite pessimistic about it, I must admit, you know, because in one sense, we're very basic sense. Ukraine is, seems to be almost entirely dependent on the whims of other countries for its very survival. It is dependent on Europe to uh, keep itself solvent as a as a government, as a state. And it is dependent on the United States for the means for it to protect itself, to to maintain the the border that it has uh, just about held in the east. That is obviously a very difficult position. And you only have to look at the politics and how it's shifting in uh, in the United States and Europe to see the vulnerability there. Whereas with Russia, yes, they have uh, lots of limitations themselves, but they seem willing to ramp up their uh, economy into a war economy in the way that I'm just not sure that Europe or the United States is, is ever going to be willing to do it. I, I think I saw a, a figure this morning, it might have been in your notes, Helen, that the Russians are, uh, are prepared to spend 30% of the budget on... Um, on the war, I mean that is an extraordinary amount of amount of money. We're talking about what two percent in Britain. I mean, I, I'm just not sure that we're willing in the West to pay what is necessary. And does that come down to the fact that the Russians see this as an existential war, and we just don't? Tom, I think I think that's right. The the Russians are, are far. I mean, we should state the fact the Russians are a small economy, but they are. Um, enormously buoyed by oil. So in the first year of the war, Russia made around $590 billion in export revenues, most of that from oil and gas. That is more than $160 billion more than the annual average over the previous decade. And in the next year of the war, revenue is still going to be about $60 billion above the average. The war costs somewhere about $100 billion a year. So essentially, 
this war is covered by oil. This, you know, this war is, is the expense of this is covered. Yes, there is massive distortion to the civilian economy. They're spending about 6% of their GDP on defense. Uh, so there is huge distortion. But even there, mobilization has been a kind of odd stimulus package in depressed regions in Russia, because a young man, uh, or, or a middle-aged man even, in fact, um, who, who is going off to, to fight um, and get a death bounty, will make more for his family than he would have made in his entire lifetime. So there's, a, there's, a, there's even some positive stimulus effects of this going on. Now, compare that to Europe and the US. The paradox I'll point out is that there is still majority support for Ukraine. There is still majority support for Ukraine and for arming Ukraine and funding Ukraine when you look at the polls. But there's two catches. Number one, interest is waning. So the salience of the issue is fading. And of course, that has something to do with Gaza, Israel, Hamas. But the second issue is that there is a significant partisan split that is manifesting itself. And to give you the US example, around 48% of Republicans in the most recent poll, which I think was just from uh, mid-December, mid very, very few days ago, 48% of Republicans and Republican-leaning independents say the US is giving too much to Ukraine, compared to just 16% of Democrats and Democratic independents who hold the same view. So the the partisan politics of this is changing. And it isn't it isn't just to do with the sense that they think the absolute sums are large. It's to do with a perception of trade-offs and what Ukraine means and, and what Ukraine is crowding out in their minds. Yeah, I think that one thing that is really interesting here is is that the domestic politics of Ukraine, both in the United States and in many European countries at the beginning of the war, was really a shock to, if you like, where domestic politics had got to in these countries. So if we think of that, the decade of, or the half decade of disruption from 2000, and let's say it started in 2016, I think it started before then, but that doesn't really matter. The one thing that, or one of the things, perhaps would be a better way of putting it, that sort of united what was going on through that, or a common thread that ran through that, was a resurgence of the domestic politics of the nation state including the issue of borders. You could see that in the way in which Trump was able to use the Mexican border issue in the United States. I mean, I would argue that it was there was no issue that was more important to Trump's success, particularly actually in winning the Republican nomination in the first place than the border with Mexico question. You could see it in regard to Brexit. You could see it in regard to what was going on in Italy with the refugees. You could see it in terms of the rise of the alternative for Deutschland in Germany. There was a lot of border questions in play. And I think it's not a coincidence that actually what we're seeing now in terms of the politics of the Ukraine issue in the Republican Party and also what's going on or has been going on in Poland is that these border questions are coming back to the fore again. If you look at the reasons why someone like Mitt Romney is saying that there has to be movement from the White House before he's willing to vote for more supplementary funding for Ukraine. He's saying, we're not prepared to accept an open border. We're not prepared to accept that you think, i.e. to Biden, you think an open border, as, as he's perceiving it anyway, is more important than supporting Ukraine. He's kind of flipping it the other way around. If you look at the, the Polish truckers, they're saying that what goes what cross, economically crosses our border affects our interests. And go back to your point, earlier, Shashank, it isn't just going to be a question if Ukraine's in the EU about the end of so many funds going to Poland, it's also going to be Poland and Ukraine being in a single market with each other, which means that this trucking dispute would be magnified multiple times over. And I think that, that this is part of the problem because actually in the sense of the Western ability to support Ukraine depends upon the governments in these countries being able to say, actually, you will have to make some sacrifices for this. And it, asking the kinds of people who they are worried are going to vote for people like Donald Trump to make sacrifices. And that's what becomes, that's what's become politically difficult. In, in that sense, it's the pre-2022 democratic politics in Western states reasserting itself in a way in which the political leaders had hoped that in some sense the Ukraine war transcended that period. In a way, Helen, I guess the question is kind of where does Europe finish or what is Europe and where does the Russian world finish? Where does the United States finish is obviously much more clear. I mean, it's not, I think, a, a surprise that there's not such a clear dispute on the northern border in the United States. Um, so 
And that is the heart of this question, right? Putin essentially fin- thinks that Russia finishes much further west. And actually, I mean, I'm I'm currently reading the uh, Charles Moore biography of Margaret Thatcher again. And there's a moment where Mrs. Thatcher travels from Moscow, where she's just seen Gorbachev, to Kiev. And she is faced with some nationalist uprising there. And she's very quick to say, no, no, I, I do not support it here. And she was she was reticent in Lithuania and, and places in the Baltics. But this has been an, an open question for a while. And I think that's part of the this question, isn't it? There are there are a number of people who sympathize essentially with the Russian view that Ukraine isn't necessarily an obvious part of Europe. And so do you have a loyalty to it enough to spend the kind of money that you that is required um, to to bring it into the Western orbit? I think that um, I think that this is this is true, and it is compounded by the um, loss of starry the starry eyed approach to Ukrainian politics. Zelensky himself has uh, lost some of the star appeal he had last year, and in particular, Ukrainian politics has come back. Right, we've just seen, for example, um, Klitschko, the mayor of Kiev, attack Zelensky more robustly than anyone would have done last year. It's a really striking thing. We're already seeing, we're seeing Poroshenko, one of the old, you know, the old oligarchs, the big big beasts of Ukrainian politics trying to make political capital out of the predicament. We're seeing civil military tensions between Zelensky and his commander-in-chief Valery Zaluzhny, who gave an interview to The Economist a few weeks ago in which he said the war was in a stalemate, provoking some consternation from the presidential palace and from Zelensky's team. So, the return of Ukrainian politics has, I think, made it easier to see Ukraine as a normal country rather than a kind of saintly, a saintly, untouchable ally. But the problem with all of this is that I still, I still think there's there's a lack of a little bit of strategic thinking here in in spinning out where we go from here. There is still this assumption among many people, not just the Orbans of this world, but I think many more mainstream people, that if Russia has the initiative next year, if Ukraine is struggling, if aid looks like it may dwindle, the best thing for Ukraine to do is to seek a deal, to try to cut a deal with the Russians, to stabilize the lines, accept the loss of around 15% of their territory, 16, 17% perhaps, and, and cut their losses. And I think that the problem is there is absolutely no indication Russia is interested in such a deal, not least when they feel they have the upper hand and they feel they can gain more objectives through military progress alone. So the choice is not between a supplemental package and a deal that stabilizes and ends the war and brings peace back to Europe. It is between a supplemental that funds Ukraine and keeps them in the conflict and a situation in which Russia continues to put pressure on the regime. And in two or three years, the result could be a collapse of the government in Kiev um, and ultimately a Russia-dominated Ukraine with enormous consequences for Eastern Europe and for the Baltics. And I think we're still not acting as if that is a serious possibility, perhaps because people don't believe that it is. I think you're right there, uh, Shashat. But I think this also gets to the the centre of the, the, the tension, in a way, between the United States... And its domestic politics around this and the European Union and its domestic politics around this. Because for the European Union countries, plus the United Kingdom, I should say, this question cannot be evaded, what you have just laid out. Because actually, and it goes back to this border issue, is that Ukraine means that the European Union has to face the question of like where its effective border with Russia is going to be. Because in some point in the future, some part of Ukraine at least is going to come into the European Union in some kind of arrangement. And so in, a, in that sense, European politics has to have a domestic politics in individual countries that can grapple with that question. It's not so clear that the United States does have to have a domestic politics that can grapple with that question. Isn't it the point that in the United States, the question is, is like, what is the importance of the Russia-Ukraine conflict in the big geopolitical picture that the United States face? How does it matter in relation to the China question? But also, and I think this is where we could perhaps steer to the the Middle East, is what is now happening on the multiple or the the, the fronts of the Middle East and the Russia-Ukraine war at the same time, is this actually strengthening Russia's position generally geopolitically to the United States' disadvantage? And then the question becomes is is like, well, what is 
the Biden administration facing re-election in a year's time with these domestic political pressures where you can't even keep people on the Republican side like Mitt Romney on side going to do about this? So on the one hand, the war in Gaza has degraded the American position in the Middle East because their full-throated support for Israel that has of course, since, since, since become less full-throated, but, but nonetheless is, is pretty strong, has caused severe reputational harm across the Arab world. And I think it has also made it far more complicated to build on the progress towards normalization between Israel and the Arab states, notably Saudi Arabia, that was that was building up some momentum prior to October 7th. And um, Russia has capitalized on that in the form of its visits. These, these Russian diplomacy with the UAE and with Saudi Arabia was absolutely underway before October 7th, but they probably have a little bit more space to play with. On the other hand, I think this is it's also very, very important to understand that the, the Iran factor, how that fits into this, because Iran, on the one hand, has been much less aggressive than I felt it would be when I last spoke to you both, Tom and Helen, when I was last on the show. I felt then there was a real risk of a regional conflict. That short-term risk has gone considerably down, in my view, uh, although I think the medium-term risk has gone up. But what it has done is... It is, that has not persuaded Arab countries that Iran is no longer a concern. I think they are still profoundly concerned. And I think that actually they realize only the U.S. can still give them the assurance that they need that Iran and Iranian proxies will not destroy their growth model and their economies through things like the, the you know Houthi missile attacks on their cities. And so that long-term question or, or the post-war question of where does America fit into the Middle East? If you're the UAE or Saudi Arabia, how important is the US to you in security and military terms relative to Russia or China or any number of other actors or, 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 the, or the possibility of a rapprochement with Iran? And I think the importance of the US has probably stayed same or gone up. And Russia, for all of its ability to opportunistically step in and do deals, and, and you know we can see this in Africa with the Wagner Group, what they can't ultimately provide, I think, is a real meaningful security guarantee against Iran to big Gulf Arab states. Only the Americans can do that. And in that sense, the ball is still in Washington's court. I think this is still somewhere in which the Americans you know, have influence and leverage. And the last thing to say is Russia has destroyed its relationship with Israel. And that also has some strategic consequences. It has implications in Syria, but it also has wider implications for the way Israel re responds to Russia. So let's not forget this has not all been upside for Russia. Shashank, you touched on a country that we haven't spoken about yet uh, in this episode, and that's China. And I wonder how important China is going to be over the next year or two in the war in Ukraine. Because, I mean, You've already spelled out how a country like North Korea or Iran can play a significant role in improving Russia's position. What if China started to see that Russia was uh, potentially going to win this thing and started to lend more support to Russia, either militarily or economically? I don't know how. Would, could that is that something is that like the dog that hasn't barked in this in this war? Yeah, it, it, it's a dog that has whimpered, you could say, because China has provided dual use items, drone parts, semiconductors, all kinds of other things to Russia that have been really important for its war machine. But they haven't provided large scale military support. If they were to do so, it would fundamentally change Russia's position, as I have always said. I still think that they are going to hold back from that. I think the trigger here would not so much be perception of Russian momentum. In a way, that takes the pressure off China. It means we don't have to step in. They do not want to wreck their relationship with Europe, right? We're just having an EU-China an EU -China summit in, in recent days. The Chinese still want to keep that relationship on an even keel, and they are just beginning a rapprochement with the Americans, a sort of detente, you could say, as their own economy struggles. They do not want to invite big sanctions that would compound their economic pain at home. They only would step in on a big scale if the Russians were losing. And I think for now, that's not a big concern for them. So looking ahead, I think China will still keep this at arm's length. I still think they will keep the finger in the diplomatic pie. They will try to keep talking to the Ukrainians. But their big leverage is really, I think, in post-war reconstruction funds and re reconstruction aid. And that's where they can dangle that money and maintain their influence in Kiev. The Ukrainian government still really wants to keep an open channel to, to the Chinese government. Can I just go back to um, Iran 
um, Shashank and put a slightly different interpretation on what's gone on in the Middle East as a result of the conjunction of Ukraine's military difficulties and the Israel-Hamas war. And that is, you could say that, look, everybody, Arab states, plus actually Russia, has benefited from the fact that the US has been willing to use its naval power to deter Iran. That That is pretty significant, I think, to the overall picture in the Middle East at the moment. It's why, although we're seeing some action by the Houthis where uh, shipping is concerned, we're not seeing anything from Hezbollah particularly, certainly not given the possibilities that there are for Hezbollah given the number of rockets that they have. Now, you could argue, though, that that's probably as much in Russia's interest as it is everybody else's interest in the sense that Russia has an alliance with Iran that's become more important through the course of the war against Ukraine because Iran's been willing to act, provide military supplies to Russia. But Russia also doesn't want Iran acting unilaterally in the Middle East. It wants Iran constrained as well as regarding Iran as an important alliance. So if the Americans are more willing to be the deterrent power for restraining Iran, that actually suits Russia, I would say, quite well. And isn't the crucial thing, though, that where Russia's ability to finance this war is concerned is the fact that it's been able to maintain its relationship pretty much undiminished with Saudi Arabia through this. And the fact that where it comes to controlling the volume of oil production through OPEC+, Plus, that Bin Salman and Putin are on the, are on the same page. And if you look at the complete breakdown of relations that they had in the first months of the pandemic where effectively Donald Trump had to save them from each other, is that they've got through this period without anything like that difficulty. Yes, I think that that makes sense. Russia as opportunistic actor rather than outright instigator of more Iranian violence. I think that's right. Um, there was a lot of, there's a lot of pro-Ukrainian types who've been egging on the view that Hamas is is like Putin. Uh, these are ideological brethren. And of course, it's true. Russia has been meeting Hamas. They've been opportunistically making those connections. And that's part of their own rapprochement with Iran and Iranian allies. But really, you, I, think you're, I think you're broadly correct. Though what I will say on Hezbollah is that I'm worried that Israeli officials are now talking about their inability to live with Hezbollah particularly in southern Lebanon anymore. They say, we can't live under this threat after October 7th. After seeing what Hamas did, Hezbollah has the, 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 the sort of its own elite force trained to infiltrate Israel. We have to eliminate them. There is talk here, I think, of reminds me of the US around Iraq in 2001, 2002, about the importance of preventive action to eliminate a looming threat to the state. The more that talk advances the more Hezbollah will feel, although we have kept out of this fight, we have a use it or lose it dilemma. If we don't act against Israel at some point soon, we will be preempted and we will lose our substantial rocket arsenal. And Iran will come to the same conclusion. And I worry that there are some dangerous spiral dynamics here swirling around, um, uh, which will manifest only once this ground campaign begins to dial down in Israel, which it probably will over the new year period. And then it will be interesting to see whether Russia encourages that uh, and wants to see continued turmoil to keep America bogged down, to keep the conflict from distracting everyone, or whether even for them that this is beyond the pale, that this is too much, uh, that actually um, you know, even Russia begins to encourage uh, a more stable uh, and careful approach by the Iranians. T talking about uh, sort of negative dynamics and spiralling out of control and all of that, let's. I think maybe we should finish on a sort of... Uh, long-term view here, back to the war in Ukraine. And one thing that struck me in my conversations over the weekend with government officials and academics who are looking into this is that there is perhaps an overly optimistic scenario. It's not even particularly optimistic that at some point a rump Ukraine will emerge with a border and then it will start to drift towards the West, both NATO and the EU. But there is a scenario where Putin feels that he can never finish this war formally because the moment he finishes the war, then it allows 
whatever rump Ukraine is left to start that drift into NATO. So long as there is a war, it can't drift into NATO. That's been made very clear because that puts NATO at war with Russia. And Putin knows that very well. So he has an, an interest in keeping it going to some extent. And at the moment, it, lo- it looks like he can afford it from what you were saying earlier, Shashank. And the other thing that worried me in, in my conversation, so people are saying that he still has arsenal that he hasn't used yet, cruise mis- missiles that for some reason he hasn't started throwing at Western Ukraine and really terrorizing the country beyond what he's currently doing. And so that scenario sounded far more worrying, pessimistic, but also weirdly realistic to me that if Putin fundamentally believes that Ukraine is part of Russia, he will not stop. And and so there is this kind of internal dynamic, similar to what you've just described there, Shashank with Israel and Lebanon, that that means war continues. There is a scenario, Tom, in which war is with us for uh, five, six, seven years, or indeed for the rest of Putin's life. And I think we have to prepare for that scenario as Europeans, uh, looking at it squarely in the face, rather than wishing it were otherwise, or imagining that Russian objectives were what we wish them to be rather than what they are or might be. But in the spirit of your question and your, your effort at good news, I will also just spell out a slightly better set of events that could quite easily transpire as well. And in that situation, we will see much more pressure on Crimea next year, even though there may not be big ground offensives. There will be some offensives, but there will be significant pressure on Crimea. I have no doubt about that. And the Black Sea Fleet will come under great pressure. I think we'll see more destroyed Russian ships. And then here's what could happen. We could see a big US supplemental package pass by the end of the year. That is on the table. Ukrainian officials who have just come back from Ukraine, they tell me they think it'll happen, even if I'm a little bit skeptical. We could see Joe Biden re-elected at the end of next year. We could see Russia struggle to mobilize more troops or to realize that conducting another mass mobilization is beginning to ramp up political tensions in unexpected ways. We could see Russia's defense industry struggle to um, produce enough for their meeting their aims and the, that lack of offensive capacity, meaning they just can't push through Donetsk. And then in November 24, if Biden's re-elected, they have to ask themselves, we thought we could outweigh the Ukrainians. Can we deal with another four years of this? Can we deal with another four years of 6% of our GDP on defense, 30% of our budget on defense, of um, thousands and thousands of casualties a week, of um, a distorted economy, of being reliant on the North Koreans and Iranians, Can we deal with another four years of that? Or given the pressure on Crimea and given our lack of progress, do we need to start also thinking about a settlement? Does it create room for more pragmatic voices around Putin to put pressure on him or for Putin himself to reconsider? Now, I accept that's not exactly a a wonderful roses and sunshine scenario, but, um, you know, it is a path towards a rump Ukraine recovering some of its territory, moving closer to Europe, perhaps moving closer to NATO, having a pathway to NATO membership, and that is ultimately a successful, thriving state that puts a war behind it. And that is the antithesis of everything Russia tried to achieve in February 2022. So I'm not saying that's the likeliest scenario right now, but I'm saying it is one of the pathways rather than uh, allowing us to fixate purely on the doom and gloom and the, you know, the apocalyptic pathways ahead. Well, on that note, we should finish. Shashank, again, that was a fantastic guide. Yeah, thank you very much indeed. Yeah, fiendishly yeah. complex subject. And I think we covered a lot. I mean, my takeaway is that everything is still completely up in the air. Nothing is fixed and it could go in so many different ways. Thanks so much. Uh, we will definitely bug you to get you on at some point in the future. We'll leave you alone for Christmas and New Year. Have a great one. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having me again. Thanks for listening to that episode. Please do follow, like, and share with your friends and family. And as ever, this podcast was produced by you and Daughtry.